So I, um, my intention this evening is to talk about uh, practice, meditation practice in nature, the relationship of Dharma practice and nature. Um, I just returned from um, doing a kayaking and meditation retreat in uh, Tevinkoff Bay, uh, southeast Alaska. Um, flew in on a boat plane and uh, got dropped off in this, I think it's about a thousand square mile uh, wilderness area and uh, pretty much didn't see us another soul for 10 days, or seven or eight days, whatever it was. Um, didn't see another human being anyway, let's put it that way. Uh, <laughs> the place was teeming with life, teeming. Pristine, uh, and the wonderful things about Alaska is it, its ecosystems are relatively intact uh, because of lack of um, large-scale human encroachment. And so there's a, you know, those of you who know Alaska, I mean, it's, it's just very powerful land, the, the way it's been untouched um, or uh, desecrated in, in any way. And there's this power, there's a power to the land, a power to the, to the sea there, and um, beautiful place to do a retreat. Uh, misty, rainy, and um, every time we went out in the kayaks, we would be followed by humpback whales, uh, surfacing, blowing some of the mothers with their babies, and um, sea otters swimming everywhere with their, with their, with their young on their bellies and um, incredibly silent. The nearest road was about 60 miles away. And um, so it was very um, quiet. <laughs> and profound way to experience uh, nature, profound way to, to meditate in silence. So I'll, I'll, I'll talk about some of that as, as the talk goes on. Uh, for me, my, my main teacher, in a way, has, has, has been nature for a long time. And even though I've been a Buddhist practitioner for 20 years, I, I sort of regard nature as my primary teacher, kind of my root guru. And um, it's the place that I, and I think a lot of people, feel the most sense of well-being, silence, peace, connection, it's the easiest place for me to, f to, to, to connect with true nature, that sense of uh, inner wholeness and completeness. Uh, a lot of the Dharma teachings come alive there for me, impermanence, interconnectedness, selflessness, all seems to reveal itself quite effortlessly. So, um, so because of that connection I have with nature, I, I started to do these, uh, these lead retreats, because I love it. I, I love meditating. I love being in nature. So you know, I thought, combine the two. And um, I noticed a growing interest in, in, in this longing for nature, longing for wilderness, longing for contact with the elements. And it's, I've noticed how profound it's been for people, uh, taking people out on these trips. Uh, especially going out in a kind of meditative, respectful, contemplative way, rather than doing nature, rather than you know climbing 
you know, seven peaks in seven days, or, you know, <laughs> kayaking, you know, 30, 40 miles a day. It's much more about doing less or doing nothing and allowing nature to uh, do the, you know, do the work to receive its blessing. So it's a different orientation for being in nature. Um, I think a lot of the ways that we, we go into nature are in some ways are a distraction from actually just receiving what it has to give. And I started writing a book, um, you know, it's one of those projects that, you know, well, who knows when it will actually ever complete itself, but I started writing a book a couple of years ago on the theme, and it, the original title was Sacred Wilderness, um, Path to Practice in the Wilderness. And um, as I wrote, what, what I noticed that came out was that um, it was less about wilderness and more about nature that's really everywhere. You know, which it is everywhere. We are nature, we live in nature, we're surrounded by nature, um, and we don't need to go into the remote wilderness to experience the blessing and the fruit of it. So um, a lot of my um, stories in that book talk, it, it really come from sitting on my deck and just, just being sensitive and open to, to what's around us. You know, we step outside the, out of this, out of this a lovely trailer, and um, <laughs> I've taught many a day long here where, where my whole, every cell in my body is just <laughs> long to jump through the window <laughs> and sit in the trees. Um, so um, when I'm teaching these, these nature retreats, and then we do them now at Spirit Rock one or t- once or twice a year, and <coughs> some day longs up, up in the hills in the woods, which is quite lovely. Um, I feel like I'm really in, in sync with the Buddhist tradition because uh, many streams of the Buddhist tradition have really grounded themselves in nature. You know, the Buddha uh, who lived in the, the forests of northern India at the time was very heavily forested, um, was born in a forest in the, on the border of Nepal, uh, grew up in palaces, and then he left his palaces and uh, went into the ascetic life um, as a sort of spiritual seeker and lived in the forest primarily, and, and then attained enlightenment under uh, a Bodhi tree, and then spent the next 45 years practicing, teaching, uh, in the forests, of, in the plains of northern India. And then he died in a grove of sal trees. So his whole birth, life, and death really took place uh, in the forest. And, his, and, his, and if you read his teachings, they're full of these beautiful metaphors from the natural world. Like really, you could tell how viscerally he knew the natural world, and I think influenced his teaching a lot. One of my favorite stories is when he was um, uh, in, the, in, the, in the full uh, thrust of his ascetic period and um, had become very weak because he was living on a grain of rice a day and practicing a, lo- practicing a lot of austerities. And he got so weak he couldn't practice anymore. And he realized this really can't be the way you know, to, to have a body so depleted. And he remembered a time when he was a young man sitting under a rose apple tree, watching his father uh, ceremoniously plant the first season's crops. And he remembered sitting incredibly 
uh, tranquilly, uh, incredibly tranquil, uh, at ease, a natural sense of peace and concentration and, and uh, pleasure uh, were kind of accessible. And he realized that that actually was a more balanced, useful way to pursue his meditation, to pursue his awakening. And um, I think it's interesting that that memory took place in the context of this beautiful setting. Often after he would give a teaching to his monks and nuns, he would say, okay, there are, monk, there are trees and there are the roots of trees. Go meditate, ye monks. Seek solace in the forest, lest ye regret it later. There are trees and there are the roots of trees. And then they describe a few of the preferred places to meditate. One of them was at the root of a tree. One of them was just uh, gathering a lump of um, uh, kusha grass. Um, and he would often tell people to go into seclusion in the forest to meditate because of the ideal circumstances. And there's stories of um, people going to look for the Buddha for teachings at night when he was uh, teaching and meditating with his monks, and often stories of uh, kings and princes would go to seek him out and his retinue, and um, they would be looking for him in the forest, and they knew they were in this particular forest, but it was so silent, and they'd come across uh, the monks and the Buddha sitting in moonlight uh, through the night as they did during the full moon, and uh, um, and sitting with hundreds of monks and nuns practicing uh, in stillness and silence in the forest. And I just love that image of coming across, you know, this, this sort of sea of robes of people meditating in the night. And nature, I think, has played a significant role in, in as I said, many of the Buddhist traditions. In the Theravadan tradition, which this uh, spirit Rock is uh, really kind of rooted in and somewhat drawing its, its teachings from. Uh, in Thailand, for instance, there's a whole, there's a major f- uh, part of uh, Thai Buddhism uh, that comes, it's called the Thai forest tradition, that uh, is centered primarily in the forests of Thailand. Um, and many of the great meditation masters uh, walked and practiced and studied in, deep in the forest of Thailand prior to most of the, the forest being cut down. This is a story from uh, a teacher um, who lives up in Seattle, Rodney Smith, who sometimes teaches here, who went to study with Achan Buddhadasa, who was one of the most brilliant uh, Thai meditation masters of the last century. And he um, sort of renounced the traditional monastic life and kind of did his own thing. He started his own forest monastery called Swan Mok, which means the Garden of Liberation. And he really used teacher as uh, nature as uh, one of his primary sources of inspiration. This is Rodney talking about going to visit Achambuddhadasa. When I arrived at Achambuddhadasa's monastery, I asked if I could stay at the monastery for a while and learn from him. He told me he had nothing to teach, and I was better off going somewhere else. I left somewhat dejected and approached another Thai monk who spoke English. When I told him what had occurred, he suggested I go back and ask the Achan, which is a, a word for teacher, if I could stay because I wanted to learn from nature. I took his advice, approached Achan Buddhadasa, and once more requested to stay, 
but this time because I wanted to learn about my own nature by being in nature. Ajahn Buddhadasa's eyes lighted up and he said, Ah, yes, you may stay. The forest is the teacher here. I ended up staying for three years and left only when I fully realized what my true nature was. And then there's stories, as you may have heard, of uh, the great Tibetan yogis and yoginis who practiced up in the Himalayas, in the mountain caves. Um, many of the great uh, masters that I've read about, you know, I guess there wasn't many places to practice in the 10th and 12th century except in caves and up in the mountains. And there was a famous uh, teacher, uh, Shabka Rinpoche, who would um, go and practice on this island and he would access the island in winter by going across uh, the ice that had formed. And in the summer, the ice would melt, and he was stuck on the island, and he had to practice until the ice formed again so he could get off. It's hardcore practice. <laughs> and then there's, uh, as Buddhism spread to China and Japan, there's also a very strong, um, beautiful relationship of uh, practice to nature in those traditions many beautiful uh, poets and hermits and mystics wrote about their experiences. Um, some of my favorite poetry. This is something from Han Shan, who is a, a wonderful uh, meditation master, lived in China in the 8th century. He said for me, this is from, Co he, he, he uh, lived in, and uh, studied and died on Cold Mountain. As for me, I delight in the everyday way, amongst mist-wrapped vines and rocky caves. Here in the wilderness, I am completely free, with my friends, the white clouds, idling forever. There are roads, but they do not reach the world. Since I am mindless, who can arouse my thoughts? On a bed of stone, I sit alone in the night, while the round moon climbs up cold mountain. Who can break from the snares of the world and sit with me among these white clouds? So it sounds very delightful, <laughs> very romantic. <laughs> he has lots more verses about how difficult it is. It's cold, it's lonely, <laughs> it's damp, <laughs> the food sucks. Um, you know, living on rice up in a very steep, slippery mountain, uh, very few paths going up there. But at the same time, there's, despite the hardship, and they really did, I think, suffer great hardship, those hermits, um, there was continual taking of refuge in the natural world, in the streams, in the way the, the wind whistled through the pines. And even in, um, you know, the Western traditions, I, which I know less about, you know, I know of Jesus' time in the desert, uh, 40 days in the desert, which I think was a real spiritual sojourn, obviously. Um, many other examples, which I won't go into. Um, and then there's some th people more contemporary, like Thoreau, who went to Walden for Pond for two years, and um, which was, I think, a relatively radical act in those days. Um, he said, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life, to see if I could not learn what it had to teach. 
and not when I came to this die, discover that I had not truly lived. So I think, and I like what he says at the end, to discover that I had not truly lived. You know, we often go into nature and we get a re- reorientation, a re-perspective on our lives about what's real, about what's essential, about what's important. And at the end of uh, his time there, he wrote an addendum to uh, Walden. And uh, this is a, a piece from that. He said, there was a time when I could not afford to sacrifice the bloom of the present moment to any work, whether of the head or hand. I love a broad margin to my life. Sometimes in a summer morning, having taken my custom bath, I sat in my sunny doorway from sunrise till noon, amidst the pines and the hickories, in undisturbed solitude and stillness, until by the sun falling in at my west window, or the noise of some traveler's wagon on the distant highway, I was reminded of the lapse of time. I grew in those seasons like corn in the night, and they were far better than any work of the hands would have been. They were not time subtracted from my life, but so much over and above my usual allowance. I realize what the Orientals mean by contemplation and the forsaking of works. Another thing I like about what he's pointing to is um, he wasn't meditating. He wasn't doing a meditation practice, yet clearly he was in deep contemplation. And it points to... um, the, uh, the effortlessness um, of practice that can happen in nature, that often we just have to put ourselves, I mean, we can do this anywhere, but nature just seems to support it. We can just put ourselves somewhere in nature. We don't have to be formally practicing, and yet we can uh, tune into or develop or cultivate a meditative awareness. Nature has a way of rubbing off on us, which I'll talk about. That, that, that allows us to quite instinctually cultivate this sense of uh, meditative depth. You know, and then there's the poetic tradition. I, how much of poetry is inspired by nature? You know, how much do we read from the great mystics and poets that really um, so much of their inspiration comes from nature? One of my favorite lines of Rumi's is, last night the moon, the moon came dropping its clothes in the street. So I'm going to talk a little more about uh, being in nature that, as a way of cultivating and supporting our practice, our meditation practice, our Dharma practice. So... One of the first things that I notice when I go outside and I go into the woods or wherever I go um, is I notice my sense is becoming more alive. And if you notice that when you go into the woods or outside, it's, you know, we're animals. You know, we're both predators and prey and, you know, we're also conditioned by millions of years of evolution. And so naturally, our, you know, our, you know, our, our body um, becomes more enlivened because it has to, because that's how we survived. It's, we don't have to think about it, it just happens. Our ears, our hearing becomes more acute, our sight maybe becomes clearer, and that's the sort of tactile, sensile skin and, and the sensation, and the sort of sensory awareness that comes through 
touch becomes more alert. The hairs on the back of the neck. And often we have to pay more attention in nature because, you know, there's danger or there's a threat in some way. Less so now because we managed to um, eradicate most of the main predators, but still, I remember kayaking um, up in Alaska and beautiful as it was to be around these humpback whales, they're also 50 tons, <laughs> you know. They're about probably the length of this room. Um, and with this, these little floating <laughs> bobs on the surface that sometimes get in their way when they're surge feeding on krill and candlefish and other kinds of uh, salmon fry. And, and one day we were kayaking and this whale's very close. And I happened to look back at my friends who were in the kayak behind me and uh, the, the, when, the sur- when whales are surge feeding, you see the, the water rise before they come out, that you see all the little fish kind of trying to get away from this huge mouth that's <laughs> about the size of this, uh, this d- thing I'm sitting on. And I turn back and this <laughs> it looks like the, the whale's going to just chew up the kayak. <laughs> it was about 15 feet behind us, coming out full force, surge feeding, saw the kayak, rolled over, and I uh, just missed my friend, who fortunately didn't see it because <laughs> he really would have freaked out. <laughs> So we have to pay attention. (laughs) If you've hiked in grizzly country, in brown bear country, you'll know about the senses being really alert. Um, I've hiked up in a few places where there's grizzly, and um, that feeling of not being top of the food chain anymore (laughs) really cultivates mindfulness. (laughs) Big time. And we, we wake up naturally, not just because we have to for survival. Um, I think we also wake up because nature invites our attention. There's a sort of reciprocal rela- relationship, um, some kind of allurement. You know, nature allures our senses you know, into paying attention to the mystery, paying attention to the beauty, paying attention to just the wonder of how anything appears at all. You know, it's, it's an amazing display. Paying attention to the complexity of life, the freshness, the vitality. Mary Oliver, who's a beautiful, wonderful poet, um, speaks so well to uh, this aliveness and allurement that comes from being outside. So I'll read a, a poem that you probably all heard, but it speaks to the, um, this integration of awareness and nature. How nature calls forth an, an attentiveness. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass the one who is now eating sugar out of my hand, the one whose jaws are moving back and forwards instead of up and down, the one who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her her face. Now she snaps her wings and flies away forever. I don't know exactly what a prayer is, but I do know how to pay attention. 
I do know how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me what you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. That's someone who's paying attention, like really paying attention. Nature invites out of us the quali- some of the qualities that are really important for meditation. Interest, openness, receptivity, curiosity, a letting be, a, la- a letting things be as they are. We generally cultivate that spirit of letting be in nature more because we can't control it. We often have the illusion in our lives that we can control a lot of things, so we get very controlling. When we're outdoors, there's a kind of a surrender happens because we know how vast life is compared to our small selves. One of the sweet things about being on this land and meditating and doing retreats here is, you know, having the company of all these deer, the mothers and the, the young, and um, they're just such a wonderful role model for meditation. This this beautiful balance of alertness, incredibly alert, the ears, you know, like radars, poised, and yet incredibly relaxed. You know, someone will come, there'll be footsteps, there'll be rustling, and they'll immediately become very tense and ready to flee. And then the, the threat will pass, and they'll shake, and they'll release the fear, and then they're just back munching grass again, you know, chewing as if nothing ever happened. You know, even though there might be a mountain lion in the forest, they just relax, you know, until the threat is actually more ominous. How great it would be if we could let go like that, you know, get stressed and then let it go, relax till the next, you know, email or. <laughs> so another support that happens in nature is the peacefulness that comes. You know, it's a wonderful salve for our somewhat crazed, modern, fast-paced lives. You know, we step outside into the woods, you step outside the door, you feel the air, the cool evening air, you see the moon, um, you see the rustle of the leaves or the scent of the, the hay at night, and something relaxes. We kind of soften. We feel often, not always, but often feel more at ease. It's a wonderful way to return to balance. You know, a key theme in Buddhist practice, in any spiritual practice, is balance. How do we come to balance? And so often the balance is tipped in, f- in favor of doing, of speediness, of restlessness, of ill at ease. And nature, being in nature for the most part, balances that with a sense of calm, a sense of tranquility, a sense of non-doing. It often helps us give us a sense of perspective. I know many times I've, you know, had rows or got really stressed about something, and then I just take off. I go outdoors, take a walk, go into the garden, and there's something about just having 
you know, being open to the bigger picture that even just sitting with a tree does. And it's sort of like I said, it's at some point in time, gain perspective. This is from Wendell Berry, beautiful poem called The Peace of Wild Things, uh, which really speaks to uh, the juxtaposition of the, the, the suffering that the mind creates and how that is put down when we can really just drop into being in nature. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and where the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world, and I am free. Coming into the peace of wild things. So to some this might sound like um, more kind of like avoidance or running away rather than dealing with life, running into the woods every time you get stressed. Frankly, if all the world did, I think would be a happier place. Uh, we often don't have that opportunity. But it does speak to the, to, the, to the idea of cultivating balance, knowing what it is that brings ourselves back to balance, back to equilibrium, back to poise. Another of the gifts of nature is the gift of silence. Just sitting here listening to the frogs, and the grasshoppers, and Nature is actually rarely quiet, have you noticed? <laughs> so we talk about silence, and yet it's also you know, replete with sounds. Yet, just, just, like just then when we just all were quiet and listening to the sound of the frogs, there's a silence that's permeating that, isn't there? It's like it feels very deeply silent, even though it's full of aliveness. And that's very interesting to me. What is that? That you know, if someone was talking, it, it would f- probably feel like an encroachment. It wouldn't feel, we wouldn't drop into the silence in the same way. But we hear sounds of nature, birds, wind, crickets, and we can somehow access a very a deeper level of silence. I lead a, this backpacking trip in um, uh, southern Utah, northern Arizona, on the Rainbow Trail, uh, just south of Lake Powell. And um, for those of you who spent time in the desert, in this, the, the silence is very profound. Very profound. You know, having, you're walking on something that's been an ocean bed for millions of years 
And there's something about that that just does something to the silence as far as I'm concerned. It always feels very old. Um, these canyons that we walk in there, ancient. And um, as part of this retreat, people do a 24-hour solo. Go off into, they find a, a private space in the canyons to really sort of even deepen more the sense of solitude and intimacy with the land. And myself <coughs> and uh, my co-guides wait in base camp, and then the people come back after 24 hours. And the silence that people bring back is just profound. You know, I, I've done a lot of long retreats, three-month retreats, and things like that, and they get very quiet after a while, as you can imagine. But there's the, the silence that, came, that comes when people come back from the desert is, is really remarkable. This is from Thomas Merton, who was a, well, we all know, is a great Christian mystic and spent a lot of time in solitude and in silence. To deliver oneself up, to hand oneself over, to trust completely to the silence of a wide landscape of woods and hills or sea or desert, to sit still while the sun comes up over that land and fills its silences with light, to pray and work in the morning, to labor and rest in the afternoon, and sit again in meditation in the evening when night falls upon that land and when silence fills itself with darkness and with stars. This is a true and special vocation. There are few who are willing to belong completely to such silence, to let it soak into their bones, to breathe nothing but silence, to feed on silence, and to turn the very substance of their life into a living, vigilant silence. I think there's a deep longing in this culture for silence. You know, generally, it's pretty noisy. Externally, it's even more noisy internally, we noticed. <laughs> that mind, boy, doesn't shut up. <laughs> and sometimes we're actually afraid and intimidated by the very silence that we seek. Sometimes there's a lot of fear about going into the wilderness or on a meditation retreat that's silent because it can feel challenging. Because what, what happens is we have to look at ourselves very deeply. It's like the, the wilderness or the silence holds up a mirror to ourselves. And sometimes we don't want to see what's there. You know, one of the blessings that I notice on these meditation retreats in nature is, um, in some ways, people have to work less hard in the meditation. Because being out in nature, the mind quietens down by itself. There's just something that rubs off. And so, when the, when the mind is away from its usual habits and possessions and the me's and the my's of this world, it kind of gets quieter. And if on a normal med meditation retreat, there's usually a lot of work that has to happen to, to find some calm and quiet with the mind. In nature, it happens really somewhat effortlessly. Um, and that's just an interesting thing to notice in itself, 
what is it about being in nature that allows the mind to come to a quieter place, to come to stillness? This is from Eckhart Tolle. Whenever you bring your attention to anything natural, anything that has come into existence without human intervention, you step out of the prison of conceptualized thinking and to some extent participate in the state of connectedness with being in which everything natural still exists. To bring your attention to a stone, a tree, or an animal does not mean to think about it, but simply to perceive it, to hold on to it, to hold it in your awareness. Something of its essence then transmits itself to you. You can sense how still it is, and in doing so the same stillness arises within you. You sense how deeply it rests in being, completely at one with what it is and where it is. In realizing this, you too come to a place of deep rest within yourself. Does that sound familiar to people? There is something about coming into contact with things that haven't been manufactured or manipulated through human intervention that um, they, they seem to hold, as he's saying, a deeper connection to being, to naturalness, to stillness. You know, what was interesting about being in Tebankoff Bay in Alaska is actually um, the Tlingit uh, indigenous peoples had lived there for 5,000 years. And there was not a single trace. Actually, there were, there were a few traces. But for the most part, there was barely a trace of this civilization that was very um, thriving for many of those millennia. The only trace we saw was one remaining totem pole uh, that was barely standing in the woods. And uh, the way that they had removed some of the rocks so their canoes could glide up more seamlessly onto some of the beaches. So there's a way that as humans we can interact with the world and not leave such a um, kind of tormented presence on it. And I think as much as I know of indigenous cultures um, that live so much more in harmony with the land, that uh, that stillness uh, is less uh, disturbed. Another thing that I notice that happens in nature is um, life kind of gets pretty simple. You want to eat, you want to make sure you're warm, make sure you rest. That's about it. and, And water and stay somewhat protected from the elements. And then everything else is kind of fine. And we realize how little we actually need to be contented. How much we distract ourselves with stuff, and doing, and becoming, and getting, and acquiring, to get the peace that is already there prior to doing all that stuff. That's the irony.
poem by Ryokan, who is a beautiful Japanese, here we go, poet, who again, his life seemed to be a, a great expression of simplicity. My hut lies in the middle of a dense forest. Every year the green ivy grows longer. No news of the affairs of man, only the occasional song of a woodcutter. The sun shines and I mend my robe. When the moon comes out, I read Buddhist poems. I have nothing to report, my friends. If you want to find the meaning, stop chasing after so many things. One of the things that's uh, interesting to practice with in nature is to work with fear. Fear usually comes up for some people in somewhere, maybe it's in relation to darkness or predators or just being out exposed in the elements, fear of discomfort. When we were up on this trip, um, the weather changes a lot there and you never quite know when you're going to get out. We were uh, stuck on this island for a day and a half waiting for the boat plane. I came a day and a half late. And it was interesting practice just to see what the mind did with that. You know, I got my flights to catch, I had work the next day, story, story, story. Well, the clouds were low and the planes don't fly. <laughs> Next day, the clouds were low. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll see how long this goes on for. So I want to say a little about how um, nature helps reveal some of the Dharma teachings. This is from Kabir. When our eyes and our ears are awake, even the leaves on the trees teach like pages from the scriptures. When our eyes and ears are awake, even the leaves on the trees teach like pages from the scriptures. So one of the things that we notice so easily in nature is the teachings of impermanence, of change. It's pretty obvious. You know, it doesn't take... It's not rocket science. The top of Mount Everest is marine sandstone. The top of Mount Everest is originally seabed. Some of the... Uh, I think sometimes we, we kind of get impermanence more viscerally in nature because it's, it's often more arresting, it's, it's more dramatic, it's more immediate or it's sudden. Hearing about the North Pole turning to slush you know, it kind of shocks the. It certainly shocked my system when I heard. I, there's a there was a um, tra in the travel section of the Chronicle. There's a picture of a very lovely tropical island, and the um, underneath it said, "It's now or never. Enjoy it while it lasts. Better see these treasured attractions before they crumble, sink, and slip away." You know, with global warming. They imagine this island will vanish in under a century. Mm 
so it's often easier to see change externally. I live on in Mill Valley and um, on this ridge, and the opposite ridge, the fog just loves to pour down all day, all day, just kind of burning itself into nothing all day. It's just a such a profound um, visual teaching on impermanence. And this great wall of white, massive moisture comes over and burns itself and burns itself into nothing. Anybody who's a gardener, you know, just watching the cycles, growth, flourishing, decay, composting, manure going back, it's, it's so evident in that cycle. And again, being back in Alaska, forgive me for hopping on about Alaska, but it did leave a bit of an impression. <laughs> um, we were there at the peak of the salmon run. Uh, at the time, it was the peak of the pink salmon run. And this is a millions of salmon just, you know, leaping their way across the bay, up the streams, to spawn. And what was so profound for me was um, knowing it's kind of, it's, it's this huge movement of birth and death. You know, it's, I, I couldn't help seeing it was a march of death. These salmon, they, 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 they spawn in Alaska, they swim out all the way to China and Japan, across the Pacific, they come back after several years, they swim tirelessly up these streams, they spawn, they give birth, and they die. They all die, they sacrifice themselves to procreate. And so this amazing movement of life and death kind of playing itself out. And then all of the life that feeds upon that flow of life, the bears and the bald eagles and the whales, and I mean, you know, they've measured that you know, they've done these, um, this is complete distraction from the talk, but anyhow, they've done surveys of trees that are sometimes hundreds of miles away from a salmon run. And the years that the salmon run, they can tell when the salmon, they can go back thousands of years by studying the, the, the growth cycle of trees. And when, the, when trees have the biggest growth spurts, it's related to the to the years that the salmon run was really healthy. There's a profound interconnectedness. So we see this the, the movement of birth, we see the movement of death, things dying and decaying. I remember watching a deer die um, on, on the side of a road being hit by a car and just holding it and watching the eyes just fade from it. Powerful. You know, death is so hidden away in our culture, and yet we do see it in nature. You know, whether it's the cat dragging in a bird, or we see roadkill, or we just see the cycle of life and bugs and insects and flowers and plants. This is a, a memorial that was a um, memorial poem written. Uh, I'm not quite sure whose memorial it was. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there, I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond's glint on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn's rain. When you awaken in the morning's hush, I am the swift uplifting rush. 
of quiet birds in circled flight. I am the soft stars that shine in the night. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there, I do not die. We also get a different perspective on time being out in nature. You know, on this trail that I do, uh, that, on my, that I walk in, 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 in Arizona, in these um, canyons, the, the sandstone's 250 million years old. It just gives a completely different sense of time. <laughs> you know, a little itsy-bitsy life, which is a blink of a blink of an eye in, of 250 million years. You know, it just, it just helps to kind of expand the lens and the sense of perspective on our lives, to get so less caught up in it. Another thing that, that, we, that I enjoy, that we, even though we might not enjoy it, is um, coming into contact with the unreliability, the truth of unreliability of phenomena. One of the blessings of nature is it doesn't conform to our preferences, you know, much as we would like it to. We'd like the sun to be shining and the temperature to be a certain way and the fog not to come in and, well, good luck. You know. And there's something, again, there's something very p- uh, powerful for me about having to surrender to some force greater than, than ourselves. Because when the mind thinks it can control things and get its way, it's a tyrant. You know, I often um, watch the turkeys around here, who are kind of both amusing and beautiful and interesting. And and one of the things I, I notice is how they feed. You know, how they kind of peck at the at the grasses, the seed, and whatever else bugs they eat. And there's always um, I can't help but being aware of how aware they are of the potential of threat. Like the way they peck is kind of nervous. And they, they, they peck, you know, like in a split second they're up looking, peck looking. You know, for the animal kingdom, death is always just, you know, one little rustle of leaves away. And then there's the teachings on perfection and imperfection. I think a lot of us get caught up in the, the culture that we live in that's, that's somewhat obsessed around improving ourselves, you know, and fixing ourselves and making ourselves better and more perfect, our bodies more beautiful and our minds more smart and our health more vibrant and, you know, and all that has its place and we can also get a little attached and obsessed with it. You know, how many self-help books do you have on your bookshelf? You know, I know mine was quite large. Um, and it's fine. I don't want to knock it. You know, it has its place. Um, but we can get kind of seduced into thinking that somewhere down the line, when I read all those books and do all those things, then I'll be perfect. Then I'll be fine. Then I'll be complete. Then I'll be happy. It doesn't work like that. You know, it just doesn't. Because the, 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 the very thinking about imperfection breeds, deepens the sense of imperfection. So we're constantly chasing our tail. And for me, being out in nature is a great um, uh, uh, counterpoint to that. 
you look at the trees around here, gnarled and mossy and full of mold and cracks and crevices and you know, there's no such thing as a perfect oak tree. You know, they're all completely unique, different, bent, buckled, you know, according to life's what life's thrown at it, wind and bugs and disease and competition with the other trees. Um, and we don't kind of go around look around Spirit Rock going, you know, that, that oak tree is really, mm, you know, needs a little help, you know, a little clear out the, uh, the top growth. And, and, I mean, we do prune trees, it's true, there is a... But for the most part, we kind of settle back and, and just appreciate it for as it is. Mm-hmm. You know, it just is its own rugged, unique beauty. And hopefully that kind of rubs off. You know, we can't start to see each other, you know, as just its own unique, complex, individual perfection. You know. Suzuki Roshi said, you are completely perfect just as you are. You're completely perfect, just as you are. What's it like just to let that in? To let go of the messages of, I'm not enough, I should be more mindful, I'm such a bad Buddhist, you know, I don't meditate well, I'm so lazy. He also said we can all do with a little improvement. (laughs) But he started with, we're completely perfect, just as we are. That's the premise, that's actually where Buddhism starts from. Your nature is already inherently pure. You're inherently whole. It's just our delusion that stops us from seeing that. Becoming enlightened isn't getting something. We don't get whole. We realize the wholeness that's already here. We realize, we see through the delusion, the misguided perceptions of our mind, and we see, oh, it's already fine just as it is. Right here, right now, this very this very body, the Buddha. So the third patriarch says, So I intimated a little, um, another teaching that we see in nature is the truth of interconnectedness. You know, again, it's so evident that life is interconnected, interweaving, interdependent, mutually supporting each other. Sometimes I think we experience that less because of the because of you know buying food from Safeways and drinking water out of the faucet. You know, we, we're less connected when we're outside and you're drinking water from a stream and you're pissing on the trees around you. You get a sense of the the, the cycle of water, you know, <laughs> and it's real. You know, one of my favorite things to do is pee in the woods. It's like it connects me with the cycle, you know, one of the cycles. You know, shitting in the woods is kind of the same. It's a little less romantic, you know, but it's the same thing. You know, you you feel this part of the cycle. I remember there was one day a cruise ship came by way out in the bay. Very bizarre. And the next day, the only time I ever saw it, there was a there was a, a, a line of foam scum on the beach, and this ship was miles away, miles away, you know, um, you know, we're just so connected. 
to read this from a friend of mine, Martin Elwood, who uh, lives in a, used to live in a forest sort of retreat center in, in France. He says, I chose to live with my family two miles from the nearest road, ten miles from the nearest shop, in the valleys and the forests of the Pyrenean foothills in southern France. Long periods spent living simply exposed and engaged with the forest has served to show me above all that I am not in nature or being with nature, but rather I am also included and part of and not apart from that nature that I see and appreciate all around. In this inclusion, all separation disappears. And in finding myself as not being other, I am deeply at home with whatever is, at rest in the dance of life, done with the problems of self and world. So a few quick things just to close. Um, I think one of the greatest reliefs about being in nature is um, uh, it's not selfing itself. It's not creating a sense of self. When we when we remove ourselves from from the world of humans, who are busily, very busily creating a sense of self and making a self out of everything else. You know, we go out into the woods, and nobody's creating a sense of self. The tree is just being a tree. The deer is just doing being deer, and um, everything is being as it is. And so, the sense of self that we sort of carry around and prop up and confirm and and solidify often begins to s- dissolve and become more subtle in nature. We start we start to forget about ourselves. And in the forgetting ourselves, as Martin was saying, we become more one with what's around. When we hold the sense of self, then we hold separation. When the sense of self softens and dissolves, even momentarily, then there's nothing here to feel separate from out there. And the way I notice this is often I'm up in the hills somewhere and I'm meditating or just hanging out, and I'm feeling very you know, at peace. And then I hear footsteps or people shouting, and all of a sudden the sense of self comes back. Who are they? Are they a threat? (laughs) Am I wearing my cool hiking boots? (laughs) Do I have the right, you know, REI, you know, North Face gear on? And and, And then the sense of self coalesces, and suddenly I feel very separate, and therefore suffering from that sense of selfing. So being out in nature, it's not selfing itself. And it's a profound doorway to this understanding of selflessness that Buddhism teaches so much. Lastly, but not least, um, nature profoundly opens the heart. You know, it really is, for me, such a beautiful doorway into love. I remember teaching a retreat up the hill last year. Was it last year? Last year, I think. It was a five-day retreat. We sit into this beautiful oak canopy, very serene, which provides shade for about 30 people. It reminds me of this, one of my favorite Japanese haikus from Isa that goes something like, in the cherry blossom shade, there is no such thing as a stranger. 
And the main experience I had from sitting in those woods for five days was I felt like the only thing that I was feeling coming from nature was love. That was the only thing I noticed, that the whole place was permeated with love. The trees, the way they gave their shade, the creatures that let us be there. Um, Nature opens the heart. We all have the different ways, places that that happens, whether it's watching a sunset, or watching newborn lambs, or a deer stroll around. Um, I was watching a little baby mouse, teeny, like, you know, like half an inch, uh, crawled out of its um, nest and couldn't find its mom and was rolling on its back. And it was the most dear thing. It broke the the heart just watching this little pink feet and little pink snout. And, and, you know, I liked it. Okay. I wanted to take it home. <laughs> How do you feed a little mouse? I don't know. But it does. It it, it, it just, you know, we can't help but uh, allow our heart to open. I think it's a beautiful thing that that happens. You know, I was once teaching a re- uh, meditation class in San Quentin, and uh, we, we had go outside into the yard, there was some kind of lockdown, there was all the prison guards there, and the prisoners were over on one side, and I was standing with the prison guards waiting to get back in, and then it was a stormy day, wild blue, gray clouds, and then the full moon broke out of the clouds, and everybody went silent, you know, and there was this you know, barbed wire all around, this grim, horrible prison environment. And yet there was this, you know, magnificent display of the moon in this very sterile setting. And it really connects people. You know, Republicans and Democrats can get together about fishing, you know, or hiking, or what, you know, it's like we all have something much, so much deeper than these things that we think separate us. You know, bond to the earth and nature, it's, you know. So, it looks like I'm a time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.